Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi everyone, welcome to the Value Inspiration Podcast. My name is Ton Dobber and I'm the founder of Value Inspiration and the author of The Remarkable Effect. I'm creating a tribe of tech entrepreneurs that are on a mission to do something big and meaningful. I invite you to join the tribe as well, especially if you want to create change that matters and put your software business on momentum that you're proud of. The goal that I have in this podcast is twofold. Firstly, to inspire new forms of value creation by sharing compelling ideas and stories about the potential we can unlock when technology and people blend in the right way. And secondly, share experiences from tech entrepreneurs like you about what is required to create a remarkable software business and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so. The guest on my podcast today is Tom Charman, co-founder and CEO of Nava. When you look for, say, a restaurant or a place to visit on Google, you know, you the, the kind of the general feeling is if it's above four stars, it's worth going to. But actually today, most restaurants are above four stars. So how do you pick out a restaurant that's 4.3 versus a restaurant that's 4.4? And at the end of the day, you know, that's ignoring the kind of things that come with it, like boosted posts and kind of information to try and manipulate the reviews. The general feeling here is this is a system that's flawed and fundamentally broken. The whole independent market of, of kind of local restaurants, local bars, independently owned places, it's such a disjointed and fragmented market, which makes it hellishly difficult to actually work. But if you get something like this work, work working, what you're doing here is creating a global platform for, for kind of independent venues to actually compete against the Starbucks, the McDonald's, the, all of the other big chains that are out there, giving them a level playing field. This is Tom. For the last decade, he founded, he's been involved in, and he scaled high-growth consumer-facing products that aim to solve questions relating to the understanding and predicting of human behavior through data. He's a fan of lean startup methodology and spent most of his days building products. Tom gave a TEDx on AI and quantum computing. He advised corporates on data privacy and security, and he advised UK and EU parliaments on data and innovation. He co-founded Nava in 2017 around the vision to connect people together through food. And their mission is to realize this through creating immersive city experiences across Europe by helping locals better understand what's going on around them. The UNWTO recognized Nava as one of the world's most disruptive tourism startups. This resonated with me, and hence I invited Tom to my podcast. We explore what is broken in the process of restaurants and venue reviews, and how this is not only impacting us as consumers, but also many business owners, simply because their larger peers have an unfair competitive advantage. We discuss how to solve both the B2C and the B2B challenge with smart technology, and how to do this in a way that fuels itself by designing for virality. By listening to this podcast, you will learn four things. Firstly, that too many business software companies say they are talking to customers, but miserably fail to do so. Secondly, why we should make it the standard rule to consume less data instead of more. 
without compromising quality. Thirdly, why too many features can become your biggest problem and what to do about it. And fourthly, how rapid plus 50% growth isn't always an indicator you got product market fit. So hi Tom, thank you for uh, making the time today and be a guest on my podcast. No, no worries at all, thanks for having me. <laughs> I like the layback look and sound of this, no worries. <laughs> <laughs> Well, good. I got introduced to you by Sam Abrika, which was a recent guest on my podcast. And he told me good things about your company, Nava. But before we start talking about that, I want to uh, like, kind of dig into a little bit about who you are. So if, if you would have to describe yourself as a, as a person or entrepreneur, what would be two or three words to characterize you? <laughs> um, yeah, probably quite analytical. Um, so kind of like to kind of look at numbers and, you know, my background in engineering, data science kind of means that I'm quite an analytical person. Tireless, I guess. I'm, I'm kind of up all hours of the night. You'll find me kind of picking up the laptop at 2 a.m. and I'm working through till 3 or 4 on some nights if I suddenly have brainwave at some random time. And then I guess, yeah, maybe creative. I guess I like to try and think a bit outside the box, which is a very cliche thing to say as an entrepreneur. But no, I think everything that I do has to be kind of focused around solving a problem, but solving a problem in a creative way. Yeah, well, you say the right thing there. A lot of people talk about it, but the problem is they don't do it. And that's, I think, where the magic comes. So I like that. I like the creative parts and the fact that you start with the big problem. Talking about that, Let's talk a little bit about your company, Nava. What is the big idea behind this? What is the big problem you're solving? Yeah, so Nava really started as a kind of problem that I had myself while I was living in Germany. The kind of big thing for me was actually being able to kind of explore the actual culture of the city and, and kind of find out what was going on in the city underneath the kind of underlying top 10 list of where you should go and what you should do. And after about three weeks of living in Munich, I was, I was getting, I wouldn't say tired, but I wanted to see something different to the beer halls that TripAdvisor and various other platforms were always telling me to go to. So we kind of, my co-founder and I initially just started kind of writing about the places that we were visiting, built a blog and then kind of very quickly grew that to a big following. And the more that we did that, the more that we found actually it wasn't just the consumer problem that existed in finding the right place to go to, but the businesses that we work with and the businesses that we kind of do things alongside find it incredibly difficult to get the right customers through the door, particularly at the right time. So any restaurant, any good restaurant will fill the tables during their peak hours, except perhaps during the current climate. But the, the kind of bigger problem here is what happens outside those peak periods? And more importantly, how do you predict when customers are going to be coming into the store so you know how much staff you need? The bigger problem here is an operational problem, which is something we wanted to solve while still helping consumers get a really unique proposition by actually visiting the places they can visit based on their own personality, their own behavioral traits, and their own kind of experiences. Cool. I mean, I completely hear your point here. I mean, I think I've struggled <laughs> with the same things myself. And typically, indeed, what you get with the TripAdvisor of these world is this list that everybody's going to. Yeah. And that's the, that's the big thing, really, is, you know, it's kind of, there is no number one place in the city. What your favorite place and my favorite place are probably two very different places. And, and what we're really trying to do here is use data to, to try and work out the kind of individual that you are and then help you find the places that are best suited for you and your personality. Yeah. And what I also like is the way you kind of blend in the problem that the businesses have with exactly the same thing. They're not being found because everything is well too generic. And it's, it, typically it's review-based. So yeah. A lot of times, and this also, of course, with Net Promoter Score, is people will, will like, well, they will say it if it's, if it's really bad, 
they will maybe maybe say it if it's really good, but everything in the middle up to the seven and eight, but what is yeah. like okay, no one is talking about it. Exactly, and the kind of the other thing there, right, is you know when you when you look for a, say a restaurant or a place to visit on Google, you know you the the kind of the general feeling is if it's above four stars, it's worth going to. But actually, today most restaurants above four stars. So how do you pick out a restaurant that's four point three versus a restaurant that's four point four? And at the end of the day, you know that's ignoring the kind of things that come with it, like boosted posts and kind of information to try and manipulate the review system. The general feeling here is this is a system that's flawed and fundamentally broken. Well, getting interested. I'm going to download <laughs> your app for sure. Um, <laughs> so, what is the opportunity if we get this right? If if the world starts using this. How will it start to look different? Look different. I think, like for me, it's it's kind of doing what Foursquare did really well for big corporates. So Foursquare is really good at helping companies like Starbucks and McDonald's better understand their customers and kind of improve operational performance. Okay. But because the whole independent market of, of kind of local restaurants, local bars, independently owned places. It's such a disjointed and fragmented market, which makes it hellishly difficult to actually work. But if you get something like this worth work, working, what you're doing here is creating a global platform for, for kind of independent venues to actually compete against the Starbucks, the McDonald's, the, all of the other big chains that are out there, giving them a level playing field, which is the kind of big thing for me. Exactly. Yeah, that's a valuable thing. Definitely. Yeah, I mean, I've used Foursquare myself as well. I actually didn't even realize that it's driving a lot of feedback to the larger companies around the world. And that's, that's exactly the problem. There's only a few large ones and millions of small ones. So how do exactly. they get uh, the attention here? Exactly. So we talked, we talked about that aha moment and, and how it all sparked. What I'm always interested in is to, is to see, okay, from, from the moment you started the company in 2017 and you went on the journey to create a product, what did you do different in order to deliver that remarkable value that you're talking about? Yeah, good question. And I think this is something that I tell anyone that I'm mentoring and, and kind of trying to help build products. The most important thing you can do and the most important thing that we're doing is just constantly talking to our customers, understanding what they like and what they don't like about the product, understanding the key problem that they had and, and when this back at the start, whether this was something that just I was having or whether just everyone was having was kind of the first question. So constantly doing customer feedback, understanding what's working and what's not, it allows you to kind of focus on the key things you need to build right away and then actually to sideline the things that matter less. And I think that's one of the kind of core things that a lot of startups say they're doing but fail to do, which really at the end of the day is, the, you know, retention is the most important thing. Retention and engagement in a consumer-facing startup the two most important metrics that you can look at if, if you're trying to build a big audience of users. Let me make a small interruption here. Tom just highlighted their secret to success, the constant interaction with their customers, really listening, really understanding what problem is solving, what works and what doesn't. This insight allows them to make the right choices on what to build first and what to put on the back burner. And focusing on what matters to their customers enables them to create products that customers want more of that creates advocates, not just customers. And this not only drives retention, but more importantly, also virality. It represents a trait that defines remarkable software businesses. They create fans, not just customers. And it's a trait that you can learn as well. To start, I'd recommend you to read or listen to my book, The Remarkable Effect. You'll be immersed with inspirations around this trait, but also nine others. And you can find it on amazon.com or 
for those of you that want to know exactly where to put your focus to turn your software business into one that your customers will keep talking about, simply do the test. You can find it on valueinspiration.com slash remarkable index. Back to the interview. Yeah, exactly. Technology-wise then, I mean, you've already mentioned a number of players in this market that sort of everybody knows TripAdvisor, Foursquare, yeah. maybe, maybe lesser known, but still a big one. Then there's Google. They all do something that yeah. helps the few. You help the bigger portion at the end. So yeah. how do you get that accuracy that drives yeah, that value for, well, for the consumers that are using it and for the business that, that benefits from it? So for the consumers, it's all about kind of using behavioral analytics to actually learn about the consumer, where they're going, what they're doing, why they're doing it. So kind of being able to, to kind of build a, a fairly complex machine learning model that looks at the kind of person that you are pairs you to everyone else that's on the product. So naturally, the more users you have, the more beneficial it becomes for both the existing consumers and new consumers joining the platform. So what we're trying to do here is in a non-creepy way, because that's never our intention, is to to focus on what makes you you, um, who you are, and, and the kind of places that you'd actually want to visit. And we've tried to build the product in a way that allows you as the user to, to feedback when we're doing something right or when we're doing something wrong, which in turn is then training our technology to, to improve it over time. From the business side, really, what we're doing is we're utilizing some of that same technology to essentially help the, the venues target the right customers and then using a, a kind of multitude of data that already exists out there as well as our own data to work out what areas are particularly busy and when they're likely to, busy next, to be busy next to then allow venues to target specific groups of people on an anonymized level so that they can increase their custom when they're particularly quiet. And we can also give them predictive analytics and insight into who's likely to be coming over the next day, two days, up to a week. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> that's interesting. And that's because you are really tapping into a far larger data set. Yeah, exactly. For, for example, do you also pick up on, a, if I'm flying to, to Munich next week? Ideally, it's something that we're, we're kind of trying to do at the moment, no, but that's kind of some of the stuff that we're thinking about. Naturally, if you open the product and start using Nava while you're in Munich, then yes, naturally, we'll know that you're in Munich. And, yeah, of course. And, um, and, that, and that will help. But the big thing for us, in, and this kind of is an ethical point of view where we sure. really don't want to try it. We, we don't take any data unless it's really necessary. And I think that's the kind of the other side of the business that I spend a lot of time thinking about. The big guys out there are collecting as much data as possible. We're really trying to keep things as anonymized as possible and using things like synthetic data sets to actually protect the user data to the core, but still get the same level of results or, or to a degree, the same level of results as some of the bigger companies that exist. So do you use it as a, yeah, almost like a competitive advantage? I mean, make you, do you make people aware of it that, that you keep their privacy, that you respect their privacy? To be honest, we don't actually kind of market it that much. And I think for me, it's just because that's kind of the way the world should be full stop. And I think every company should be following those rules. So I think in time that will become the case. As, as you can see, I'm sure, you know, like, you know, privacy is becoming a massive debate. Yeah. Even recently with kind of Facebook and the various others kind of is being in the courts in the US, you know, this is, this is becoming a huge thing and has only got much bigger since Cambridge Analytica. I think the world will begin to adapt and become more privacy aware. I think we're just making sure we do it from day one, one, to protect ourselves as a company, but two, to make sure that really we're doing the right thing. You know, the motto of Google is don't be evil, I guess. You know, our the core, the big thing for us is, is the same. Um, it's, it's to try and only use the data that we really need to use. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I completely agree with that. Recently, I had a, 
I had a CEO of a company called Anagog on my podcast from Israel. They are pioneering the edge AI space. Okay, so cool. doing all of the all of the personalization on your yeah. phone and nothing else. Nothing nothing goes to the cloud. So I mean that's that's the same topic around the privacy angle there. Definitely. And, uh, I mean that's really a good thing. And I wish yeah. more companies would respect and would would work on that. No, because well, on the one hand side, of course, you can say, well, users will, if they want to have that value of the app, they will just put on the flippers to get maximum value out of that. And possibly also because a lot of users, a lot of people have a lot already given up on the fact that, yeah, everything is already out there anyway. <laughs> what can this app do to do more of that? Still, that's the wrong angle. No, so, yeah, on that journey, so many things to choose from and... So many choices to make in terms of yeah, creating something that, that works and create that remarkable value, really kind of going through the customer feedback. And of course, from customer feedback comes a lot of yeah, opinion. Yeah. So how do you make decisions? What do you say no to? So initially, we got it wrong at the start and we kind of really just focused on ourselves and, and what we thought the customer needed. And really, that kind of caused a lot of problems. And one of the problems we ended up facing is that we just ended up building too many features, um, too many features for a product that hadn't found product market fit yet. So the first thing we did is strip things back and focus on the, the kind of core problem that we were solving and the, the kind of core need and why the product needed to exist. And then really it's just about kind of looking at a kind of a various number of processes. So it's looking at whether it's easy for us to build, whether it's cost-effective for us to build, how many customers are talking about it, and what the likely impact of building this feature is going to have on, on the business for us. That's the kind of thing that kind of guides us when we're making a product decision. Yeah, exactly. I've heard that a couple of times now. It reminds me, actually, I'm currently working on a podcast with another guest from, from North America, Cyrano AI, and he said exactly the same. They actually delivered value that was sort of too good to be true. And the customer actually wanted to go grab a couple of steps back to actually get less value, mm-hmm. <laughs> but, but do it more in a way they could handle it. Yeah, because at the end, it was also about that they had to change working in a different way. But and getting it back like, to the core. Yeah, yeah, like that is, that is about part of it as well in, in the sense of like, I think when we think about kind of the, the personalization that we're doing, you would be surprised at some of the things we've had to do in the past. So kind of with the model that we've built now, we can very quickly begin to personalize content to you. But we actually have to slow that down and almost put in a timer to say, this is when it will actually start serving personalized content to the user. And that's because the user doesn't believe that something can happen that fast. So that's kind of some of the stuff that we have to think about as well is is delaying things and really kind of getting into the head of the consumer and the business to make sure that they buy into the product as much as possible. Funny, yeah? It's yeah, amazing yeah, that, yeah. that you can amaze yeah. people in such a way that they, that they feel it's scary and they, and they drop out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. and that, that's definitely a thing, right? Like you have to bear that in mind all the time. Yeah, I can exactly. I mean, during the whole process, has there been any surprising byproducts that, that you encountered that you didn't see coming but proved to become really valuable? Yeah, so the whole B2B side of it. So initially we thought we were going to be focused on, on kind of building this consumer product, you know, I had at the start of this journey a bit of a kind of Silicon Valley mindset, which was growth above all means, focus on getting as many users as possible, focus on kind of growing the company as quickly as possible. Very quickly found that that wasn't sustainable, nor was it going to build a successful business. And and what needed to be built was something that allowed us to make revenue from the business and actually turn this into a company as opposed to a product. And yeah, 100% 
understanding the businesses and the needs of the businesses and actually being able to repurpose some of our technology so that we could do some of the things that we've talked about in regards to kind of helping venues drive footfall and helping them predict footfall. Super important because that then allows them to predict how many customers they need working, how much food they have to have on take and all of this kind of information which improves their overall operational performance as well and allows them to kind of compete in a more competitive way against the bigger guys out there. So how does that model work then? Because, I mean, if I download the products, I mean, I'm a consumer, but I mean, how does it work for venues? So venues has a separate product, which they download onto their device. And what they're able to do is, you know, it's been been done many times before. It's using a combination of push notifications or proximity marketing based on the venue itself. The big difference between us is obviously you've got this very, very targeted set of people that we've clustered based on the machine learning that we've, that we've done in the company. And that allows us to be really, really specific in the kind of people that we're targeting while still keeping the anonymity of those users at the core. So the user may be served something, but neither us nor the company that's pushing that notification will know that that individual user has been targeted. Ah, okay, got you. So it's more of, yeah, I almost tie it to your CRM infrastructure yeah, as exactly. a way to target the unknown. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And then, then, and then obviously the bigger thing here is looking at, you know, kind of the places that people are, I say, checking into, you don't check in, but the places that people are visiting and going to also then gives us an indication of when a place is busy or not and cross-comparing that against kind of some of Google's technology around kind of busyness and, and, and all of that kind of information. Generally speaking, we're able to predict the type of venue that a, an individual is in without necessarily knowing with certainty what that is using some of the technology that we've built now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, when I saw it on your website, I thought it had to do with location and finding your way inside a venue. Like, <laughs> Yeah, no, fortunately, fortunately, haven't had to play around with indoor mapping too much. That is a space that is hellishly difficult. <laughs> we do take into account some, some kind of data when people are inside a venue and that's kind of using Beacon, but it's not a space that we spend too much time in just because it's, it's so difficult to map out. Yeah, I understand that. So, I mean, talking about the journey that you've been through in the last three years, so what do you believe is holding you back to create that growth that you're aspiring or that momentum? So honestly, right now, the global pandemic. Obviously, people yeah. can't go outside. Well, they, they, they can more so now in, in London, but there's a big fear. There's fear of a second wave. There's fear of death. There's, there's a lot of fear yeah. out there right now when people aren't going out as much as they used to and actually independents are struggling a lot. The kind of big thing for me will be what happens over the next six months if there is a, a, a significant yeah. second wave how many of these businesses are going to be damaged beyond all recognition? And I think that's the thing that's holding us back. Naturally, in time, we'll, we'll recover from this. And it may take three years, it may take 10 years, but we will recover. And that's kind of the positive to this. But it's just about whether we can survive that three or 10 years. So that's the big yeah. question. I mean, possibly, possibly it can also work to your advantage because one of the things you see right now is that actually people stay where they are. Yeah, And I mean, I live now, I've been living here in Spain for 11 years. I can't guarantee you that I know all the places here. There are yeah. a lot of hidden gems that yeah. I might want to explore. So that could also be an opportunity, of course, that people start to understand what's really around them rather than the places they always go to. Um, Definitely. That's- and that is, that is something that has 100% been happening during the kind of crises. You know, you, exactly. can't, you can't just jump on a train and go to another city now. It's exploring your local high street that you've you've lived in for the last three four years but now you walk everywhere so it's kind of what's nearby what's near the house and i guess for us it's just making sure we can adapt to those needs and actually be able to kind of make sure that you know 
what happens once you've seen the 10 restaurants around the corner? How do we then show you the next 10? And how do we, how do we, how do, how are we relevant in that kind of world is the kind of thing that we're thinking about at the moment. True. Yeah, exactly. But beyond that, talking about creating that, that adoption, what have you seen? Let's, let's, let's go park it before COVID. What have you seen as major struggles to, to get the adoption that you're hoping for? So actually prior to COVID, we were growing at 50% month to month. Wow. We, from a revenue point of view, and about 25 to 30% month to month from a, a customer acquisition point of view. So we were actually growing quite rapidly. We went through a period about 18, 24 months ago now where things got a bit slow. And I genuinely put that down to us not quite having product market fit. So we spent quite a long time actually trying to make sure we had product market fit. So looking at Again, customer feedback, understanding what people thought about the product, how disappointed they'd be if we didn't exist anymore, the kind of the usual kind of product market fit tests. And I think towards September, October sort of time at the end of last year, we were we were really beginning to see that. So we were acquiring users quite quickly. And yeah, that's kind of we were moving, certainly moving in the right direction. So we were in the in the midst of raising a round of funding, which unfortunately had to go on pause purely because of COVID and are now kind of re-beginning to emerge from things and pick things back up again yeah have you built any sort of virality capabilities inside the product that users start telling each other so we didn't actually have a referral scheme in place and i think that's one of the mistakes that we've made up until this kind of point but one of the things we did find is actually three for every customer that joins that joined napa we'd see between 1.2 and 1.3 new customers join so Without having a referral scheme, we had that viral growth we were beginning to see. Exactly. So obviously, had we not been slowed down by COVID, I think that would have been the next thing that we build would have been the referral scheme to, to really try and drive growth in the cities that we already operate in. Yeah, that's, these are always things, especially if, you're, if you've got a consumer product, how do you get that word, word of mouth Definitely. engine going for people that love your product? Yeah. So, I mean, I wrote this book about the 10 traits of a remarkable software business. The remarkable effect. And what I'm always interested, interested in is to hear from, yeah, from more and more founders and tech CEOs around the world what they believe is, is that one thing that you need to have right. So what, is, what do you believe is the secret to create a remarkable software business? I think for me, generally speaking, it's probably, I mean, it's, it's probably been said before, but for me, it, it all sits around retention. And that is the kind of, you know, what that links back to is product market fit and, that, and the kind of various things there. But for me, Retention and engagement, those are the two core things in a consumer business that you just have to have. If you don't have retention and you don't have engagement, then it won't ever be a business that is scalable, let alone successful. It's having those two things in combination and, and working together allows you to scale quickly, allows you to grow quickly, but it also allows you to actually build something that people care about. Yeah, exactly. Well, I think engaging comes first and then retention yeah, is, the, is yeah. the result of that. What have you done specifically to build an engagement yeah, power into the product? So for us, really, it's kind of the engagement comes from the kind of personalization side of things. Uh -huh. So actually looking at kind of the content that we're personalizing to someone and kind of looking at how they're adapting to the product and how the product is suiting their needs. That engagement that we create is, is, is kind of how well the product is performing. The second part is allowing people to kind of add things to collections, to share things, to build up their own lists of favorite places that they can then share with friends, with family, et cetera, that are visiting a new, a new city. Exactly. But that's at least where you've got some, some, some point where they can start to engage with other people and, and, and sort of drag them in. 
Exactly. Yeah. Kind of, let me see what we're doing time-wise. What have you been most proud of seeing so far as a result of the product that you've created? <laughs> that is a good question. One that I don't have an immediate answer to. Yeah, it's hard because there's just so many ups and downs in the world of startups. And they've kind of really put a finger on, on that kind of one thing. I mean, to be honest with you, the kind of one of the biggest things for me was just launching the product, which sounds really, really simple, but you know, kind of getting the first version of the product out there and getting our first kind of corporate partners on board, I guess, yep. you know, 18 months later, that was, that was when I personally believe that this was more than just an idea or more than just a product and actually a survival business. And I guess that's kind of one of the big things that, that kind of made me happy. The, the second was when we were in the midst of raising this round of funding and actually found that VCs, we spent a long time trying to convince VCs that this was a business that was worth backing. And it took us a long, long time to raise money because so many people have tried to do this in the past and have failed. So I think the defining moment for me was when VCs were beginning to pay attention to this business and, and actually show an interest in what we were doing. And it was looking likely that we were going to raise a significant sum of money, albeit about two months too late because then COVID came along and set everything on end. So what was that difference that you saw? I mean, I can agree that, of course, they all start to think about the apps that are already out there in the marketplace. Yeah. So you have to convince them about something. Okay, this, yeah. how is it going to, to create that valuation that they, that they are expiring for? Yeah. What did they see that was different? I think it was a combination of our growing revenue line. So kind of a 50% month-to-month revenue line growing yeah. for kind of a cumulative six months was the kind of first thing. The, I think the second thing for them was actually seeing that kind of viral growth. So beginning to see that referral, beginning to see kind of people talking about it in their own right. So, you know, going back to your question of like, what's the kind of one thing that you're really excited for? The first time that someone naturally said on Reddit, you should use this product I'm going to explore. And it wasn't something that one of our team had posted. That was quite a, a nice thing, definitely as well. Yeah, that's where the power of the advocates come in. That's why I'm calling definitely. my book The Remarkable Effect. It's like, if a product is worth making a remark about, as simple as that, you know, that it exceeds the expectation of someone yeah. who believes that they get this and they get something beyond that, where the wow yeah. factor comes in. That is, I mean, you don't have to be a multi-billion dollar company to achieve that. And you prove that again. Definitely. So that's cool. So from the journey as an entrepreneur that you've been through over the last couple of years, as a final question here, from the lessons that you've learned and the tidbits of wisdom that you created, what would you advise other CEOs to do or not do to succeed in life? Keep asking questions is the kind of the first thing that jumps to mind. Keep keep asking and confirming any questions that you have and, and that other people have. I think don't get complacent is, is an obvious thing. You know, when things start going well, it can very quickly go wrong as well. I think the kind of other big thing here is is understanding what the underlying vision of the company is. I think out in the US, the reason that companies do things really well is they have this kind of big vision and when we started this company we didn't have a big vision we just wanted to build something interesting that big vision that word whatever it is that you align your brand your vision your company to is what will define the success because that's the thing that you can then lean back on when you're trying to ask new questions Um, so i think asking questions and understanding the long-term vision of the company are probably the two most important things to take very very important yeah yeah and the vision is not something like i want to be a one billion dollar one billion pound company yeah it's something something that's about the the, well how the how the world is going to be a better place with your product solving a big problem 
yeah, it's all about solving a problem and being a medicine, not a vitamin is the kind of thing that always sticks with me. There's, you know, there's, <laughs> there's a place for, there's a place for vitamins, but if you want to build a really successful business, you need to be a medicine. Yeah. Yeah. Wise advice. Too often forgotten. And the, the thing about complacency is also a good one. I mean, I actually wrote yeah, a part of my book about it. The compl- oh, nice. Complacency is so easy for it to kick in. I mean, typically it's, it, it doesn't, it's not there, of course, when you start a startup. But the moment you can be a year old, and you start to believe in what you do is right and get complacent about the success that you have. It's like shh, going definitely, down immediately. Definitely. And it's because you've spent so long being proved wrong. As soon as you start being proved right, you're kind of like, well, I must be doing something right now and then very quickly yeah as you say you become complacent yeah true very dangerous disease definitely <laughs> <But> definitely <laughs> talking about yeah. some, someone else okay so what is next what is the what is your big aspiration for the next 12 months yeah good question i think for us is <laughs> unfortunately i think the aspiration at the moment is survival which is not the best aspiration to have and i'd like to have a, a much bigger goal here but as a kind of realist and someone that is quite analytical, I think the, the honest answer to that right now is survival. Survival in the sense of being able to make sure that we as a company survive, but also at the same time that the hospitality industry in general can survive as well. True. Yeah. Very, very good point because without that, your business is also impacted. Definitely. So, so where can people go to find out more about Nava or to connect with you to say hi? Yeah, feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn. Uh, yeah, Nav is available on, on iOS and on Android. So yeah, head over to the Google Play Store or the Apple Store and, and just type in Nava Discover Your City or just head over to the website, usenava.com. But yeah, we'd love to hear from people. More than happy to kind of, and try and provide a, a wise word or two or not. So yeah, I'm always open. Good. Well, thank you very much, Tom. This was... Uh... No worries at all. It was inspiring. I learned a couple of things, got a couple of things confirmed, and I hope that my audience got some real value out of this. No, no worries at all. Happy to help. And thanks Good. for having me, more importantly. That was a pleasure. And this ends my conversation with Tom. I hope you enjoyed it. And if so, please leave a review on iTunes. And if it inspired you, please share it with other tech entrepreneurs on the mission that you have in your network. Other than that, thanks for tuning into this podcast. I had the honor to speak to Tom Charman, co-founder and CEO of NAVA. As said, the goal that I have in this podcast is twofold. Firstly, to inspire new forms of value creation by sharing compelling ideas and stories about the potential we can unlock when technology and people blend in the right way. And secondly, share experiences from tech entrepreneurs like you about what is required to create a remarkable software business and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so. Before I close, I have two more comments to make. If you know other tech entrepreneurs on a mission that have a story worth sharing, please send me an email at ton.dobby at valueinspiration.com. Building the momentum all starts with revealing the ideas. And that starts with you. And if you want to know more about my book or you're interested in joining the Remarkable Effect tribe, please visit my website at www.valueinspiration.com. Thanks for tuning in. And you could do me a big favor by rating the podcast on iTunes or provide me with your feedback directly. I'll see you shortly on a new episode. The world's best-known investor and Wall Street expert, Warren Buffett, once said, 
Wall Street is the only place that people ride to in a Rolls Royce to get advice from those who take the subway. Mr. Buffett's quote is remarkably accurate, but how many people would rather receive advice from him than someone simply guessing? Welcome to Buy, Hold, Sell, your single source for Wall Street knowledge and profitable guidance. Please join me, Todd Schoenberger, and fellow trader Tobin Smith, as well as host Veronica Dudo, for a podcast known to move the needle for investors. Tobin and I are seasoned Wall Street executives with deep investment experience, and we are prepared to share our advice to those who choose to listen. Download Buy, Hold, Sell today on the Evergreen Podcast Network or your favorite podcast channel.